Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. If Senator Dianne Feinstein of California will not resign, a motion to expel her from the Senate must be brought and carried because the Supreme Court... The supremely corrupt court has gone to hell in a handbasket over the weekend, and Feinstein is not physically capable of casting the deciding votes for the subpoenas that are absolutely necessary just to give democracy a small chance of not being sold down the river by Chief Justice John Roberts, an influence peddler, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, obviously a perjuring sexual predator, Justice Samuel Alito, a condescending thief, and to expand upon Roy Wood Jr.'s pitch-perfect line from the White House Correspondents' Dinner, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, who are both NFTs. And as if all of them were somehow not enough, Justice Antonin Scalia, who is dead but is still managing to institutionalize Supreme Court corruption, money laundering, and perfidy. And the barely breathing forces of democracy and constitutional government in this country cannot even start to begin to commence, to try, to hope, to just expose these biblical levels of misconduct and fraud because people like Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin will not even say Dianne Feinstein should resign let alone force it to happen, even though she has not been seen since February, just before the, quote, shingles, unquote, attack began. And that was when she said she had not made a decision about her future when her office had already released a statement confirming she was retiring at the end of her term. It is better for democracy to die at the hands of the supremely corrupt court than for Dianne Feinstein's supporters to be offended expel her somebody in the senate with some balls introduce a measure to expel her and if she can make a defense against that measure fine withdraw it i'll apologize for it but representative government in this country hangs by a thread and every measure we can possibly take to protect it can be vetoed by a group of lifetime appointees with no accountability and no standards and no floor to their personal moral putrefaction. And it got that way in part because 
We already conflated respect and equality and inclusion with inertia and inaction and magical thinking that, oh, she'll get better. We have nothing to worry about. And how did that end up last time? It ended up with a Justice Amy Coney Barrett until the year 2063 or something. This is not a game. Business Insider reported over the weekend that the wife of the Chief Justice of the United States of America has for 15 years been making millions of dollars as a legal headhunter, placing lawyers in corporations. In other words, she has been going to the largest law firms and companies in this country and saying, Hi, I'm Jane Roberts. Roberts, like the Chief Justice. He's my husband. I want you law firms to pay me money. Maybe it isn't really influence peddling. Maybe the chief justice has never met his own wife. Maybe it just looks like the worst possible thing you could have at the Supreme Court. A chief justice whose wife's business is asking for money from law firms that want to take cases to the Supreme Court. If you don't recognize what that looks like, it looks like the thing that they call in organized crime circles protection money. A whistleblower revealed all this. His name is Kendall Price, and he worked with Jane Roberts at a legal recruiting firm and told Insider, quote, Even the law firms who were Jane's clients had nowhere to go. They were being asked by the spouse of the chief justice for business worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and there was no one to complain to. Price went on. Most of these firms were likely appearing or seeking to appear before the Supreme Court. It's natural that they do anything they felt was necessary to be competitive. We don't know how much Jane Roberts has made doing this. Insider reports that the internal records from her employer show she generated $10,300,000 in commissions from the corporations and law firms that participated in her lawyer matchmaking service. $10,300,000 in the years 2007 to 2014. How much is it since? At the rate from 2007 to 2014, it would be at least 12 million more since then. $22 million. But of course, we don't know how much she has made from what is at best only the appearance that she is peddling influence with her husband, the Chief Justice. And we cannot find out how much she has made since or what other whistleblowers might know about her husband's involvement or innocence because the Senate Judiciary Committee cannot vote out a subpoena against John Roberts or Jane Roberts or Los Angeles Dodgers manager Dave Roberts because the necessary 11th vote on the Senate Judiciary Committee is Dianne Feinstein. We don't have any idea if she has shingles or really has a chance of returning to the Senate because our consideration for her feelings and the feelings of her supporters and staffers, who would all be out of work, by the way, is much, much more important than, you know, staving off dictatorship in this country. This is not a game. Last Thursday, Nikki Haley, one of, out of an extraordinarily large field of candidates, one of the stupidest people walking the earth today, running for the presidential nomination of a party that hates women and hates people of color and hates immigrants and the recent descendants of immigrants, Nikki Haley had the audacity, the utter contempt to go on Fox and say, quote, I think that we can all be very clear and say with a matter of fact that if you vote for Joe Biden, you really are counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not something that I think is likely. And the only thing that happened to Nikki Haley was a zinger from the White House about how until she said that they had forgotten she was running. She can get away with that. But God forbid Chuck Schumer or Dick Durbin says, yes, either Senator Feinstein retires now or we will expel her. We need subpoenas issued to John Roberts and Jane Roberts. And in a world where Nikki Haley says that about Biden, Biden who verbally mopped the floor with Tucker Carlson and Fox and Elon Musk and didn't even bother with Haley over the weekend, nothing happens to her. 
nothing, no serious criticism, but we are tiptoeing around the zombie senator. Like nothing bad could possibly happen because of the zombie senator between now and January 3rd, 2025. Nothing bad could happen that would make somebody say, gee, if only we had had Feinstein's vote, we could have stopped that. But, you know, she's been a wonderful public servant and pressuring her to retire would have been unseemly and impolite in a time when morons who are spending actual money are campaigning on the premise that they know when the current president of the United States is going to die. I mean, there are so many Supreme Court scandals at the moment. They are backing up like Harlan Crow's private jets trying to land in Indonesian airspace. You've got Crow's vacation trip gifts to Thomas. You've got Crow buying Thomas's mother's house. You've got Crow letting Thomas's mothers live there rent free. You've got Thomas disclosing none of that. You've got Neil Gorsuch selling a house to the head of a giant law firm nine days after he was confirmed to the court and not disclosing that either. You've got Jane Roberts. You've got John Roberts. You've got Alito who claims he knows who leaked the Dobbs draft, but he won't say who, but he knows he can prove it wasn't a conservative because why would a conservative leak it when leaking it meant the conservatives like him became assassination targets? And you want to shake this clown and say, asshole. In the America you and your fellow fascists have created, everybody in politics is a target for assassination. The MAGA bomber with the pipe bombs had a file on me in his computer. And oh, by the way, Alito, everybody in this country in politics or not is a target for assassination because of you. Because there are 400 million guns in this country and 25 million of them are AR-15s. Have a nice day, Sam. We can't subpoena Alito about the Dobbs leak. Or anybody else about anything else until January 3rd, 2025, presuming the Democrats don't lose the Senate next year because, you know, Dianne Feinstein might be offended. And I don't even know if I put just the new Supreme Court scandals in the correct order. Is Gene, hey, let me sell you some lawyers and I'll say something nice to my husband about you, Roberts. Is she worse than the Kavanaugh story? You've heard the new Kavanaugh story. You didn't hear the new Kavanaugh story. Just because the Sunday morning shows ignored it, but found time to interview another Republican vanity candidate, the one who makes Nikki Haley seem like Abraham Lincoln. The Guardian newspaper out with an interview that blew a hole in the excuse that they had concocted during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings about the charge that he exposed himself to fellow student Deborah Ramirez at Yale. If you recall, Chuck Grassley sold the premise that she was likely to have been mistaken about that identification of Kavanaugh because, no, it was another Yale student who was allegedly known for exposing himself. Well, the Guardian found an unredacted email chain from a Colorado attorney, Joseph C. Smith Jr., a buddy of the then lead counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee, whose name is Mike Davis. This Smith suggested that excuse and said Ramirez was probably victimized by another Yale student named Jack Maxey, who supposedly had a reputation for doing this. Ah, but now it turns out Jack Maxey was not at Yale when Ramirez says Kavanaugh exposed himself. Quoting him, I was a senior in high school at the time. Jack Maxey said in an interview with The Guardian, I was not in New Haven. He said no investigator ever contacted him. These people can say what they want and there are no consequences ever, he said. Oh, and there's a newly found recording of a Max Steer recounting what he says was another event in which Kavanaugh exposed himself at Yale. And thus there is probably a case to be made that Kavanaugh perjured himself at his Senate confirmation hearing and then the chairman Chuck Grassley covered up the perjury in his report and they could both be prosecuted. But of course, the present Senate Judiciary Committee would have to start with a subpoena of Grassley and Kavanaugh. And we can't do that because of something that rhymes with Mylan Reinflein's Lamentia. Oh, and there's the Antonin Scalia Law School. 
which used to be the George Mason University Law School, until another one of these Republican billionaires paid $30 million to rename it. And the New York Times did a story on it yesterday, and it's a country club for Republican members of the Supreme Court, and it can get them lucrative teaching opportunities and trips overseas, and it can help maximize their outside income. Because look, how many FOHCs can there be out there? FHOCs. FHOCs. Friends of Harlan Crow. Oh, and the Times could only see redacted records about Scalia law and its relationship with the Supreme Court because the body that has to approve what documents you and I and the Times can read about the Supreme Court is uh, the Supreme Court. So I don't know. What's worst? The Robertses and the Supreme Court version of protection money? Scalia law? The Gorsuch house sale? The endless Kavanaugh case? The countless Thomas cases? Alito's whiny, cheesy self-martyrdom? Let's get those subpoena. Uh, never mind. And you know what? Ultimately, you know what the most frustrating thing is about this? Despite all this corruption in the Supreme Court, Thomas, Gorsuch, Roberts, Kavanaugh, Alito, all clearly compromised, each worthy of impeachment, self-satisfied, and projecting invulnerability... They are actually at their most vulnerable right now. They are scared right now. Senate hearings right now, even if they didn't produce one impeachment or one resignation or one indictment, Senate hearings right now might actually snap these leeches out of their sense that they are untouchable. Because for all his preening and posturing, this worm Alito confessed something to the Wall Street Journal that gives away their realization that they are crooks and they have been found out. Alito said, quote, we are being hammered daily, and I think quite unfairly in a lot of instances, he said, and nobody, practically nobody is defending us. The idea has always been that judges are not supposed to respond to criticisms. But if the courts are being unfairly attacked, the organized bar will come to their defense. And here's the real tell, the real sense that Alito knows, and this is the time to hit him hard. If anything, he says, the bar, the institution of self-protection for sleazy lawyers everywhere, quote, They've participated to some degree in these attacks. That is the cue. There is the rallying cry. Thus comes the signal that the time is ripe for American democracy to push back against our self-anointed fascist king overlords. But of course, to do that, to do what's necessary to do that, well, you know, we can't because it might worsen Diane Feinstein's shingles. Still ahead on this edition of Countdown, I'm going to try to make sense of this latest Trump investigation news. They got Capone on taxes. It's looking to me like they may get Trump on fundraising fraud. If it is possible to have treated the murder by mass gun madness of five people in his state more disrespectfully than did Texas Governor Greg Abbott, I don't know how you'd do it. Abbott called the victims illegal, and right after the shooting, he wrote, all smiles for the weekend. Worst person's next. 39 years ago this week, I started work as a rookie TV sportscaster in Boston. And two weeks later, the Boston Red Sox called up a rookie pitcher, and his name was Roger Clemens. And 16 years after that, Roger Clemens threw part of a broken bat at me during the 2000 World Series. Well, anyway, that's how I saw it. I believe this fellow Mike Piazza saw it differently. Well, that's next. This is Countdown. Countdown. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Coming up, the book she wants banned, the one she says she will have to involve law enforcement over. It's The Handmaid's Tale. Strange but true. Worst persons in a moment. First postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Washington, the impeccable Ryan Goodman of Just Security and a writer named Thomas Jocelyn have pretty much figured out what Mike Pence probably testified to last week to the special counsel by unearthing a secret hidden document. Pence's book, So Help Me God. Jocelyn and Goodman say if prosecutors simply asked Pence to read a couple of passages from the book and then confirmed they were true, that may have been enough to prove that Trump knew he had lost and ran his coups anyway. Malice of forethought from the January 4th meeting, quote, John Eastman was in the next chair to my right. I turned to him and asked, do you think I have the authority to reject or return votes? He stammered, well, it's never been tested in the courts, so I think it is an open question. At that, I turned to the president, who was distracted at the time, and said, Mr. President, did you hear that? He turned his attention to me and I said, even your lawyer doesn't think I have the authority to return electoral votes. The president nodded, unquote. After Pence told Trump the Constitution did not give him the right to return votes, Pence quotes Trump, These people cheated and you want to play by Marquis of Queensbury rules. Again, Trump confessing in advance he was going to cheat. And on January 5th, Pence quotes Trump as saying to him, Pence, you're too honest. Why does that matter? Because... Dateline also Washington, also from the underground secret lair of special counsel Jack Smith. The New York Times, quote, federal prosecutors have also been drilling down on whether Mr. Trump and a range of political aides knew that he had lost the race, but still raised money off claims that they were fighting widespread fraud in the vote results. Prosecutors are trying to determine whether Mr. Trump and his aides violated federal wire fraud statutes as they raised as much as $250 million. The prosecutors are looking at the inner workings of the committee Save America PAC, unquote. Why did that sound so familiar when I read it? Well, I'll tell you. Let me quote me, also quoting the New York Times, but this is from last September 8th. Quote, there is a new grand jury in Washington looking at Trump's Save America PAC, nominally created to support his legal challenges to the 2020 election, but as the fine print read, not requiring Trump to spend any money on anything but himself. There are already subpoenas sent to junior and mid-level aides who worked in the White House and for Mr. Trump's presidential campaign, according to The New York Times. 
What's nice about all of this, this part of the special counsel's investigation, is that there are soft targets here. Turns out Trump's team hired two firms, Simpatico Software and Berkeley Research Group, to find fraud for him. Neither found any. Each has been contacted by the special counsel, and it looks like they have already sung like birds because Trump used their findings ignored their findings and raised $250 million fraudulently anyway. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown. With Keith Olbermann. In sports, ABC's NBA playoff coverage yesterday under fire after a video bumper of New York City showed stock footage, old stock footage of New York City. How old? It depicted the Statue of Liberty and behind the statue, the World Trade Center Twin Towers. I've already told you that the woman over whom my old lying ex-Fox sports friend, now ex-NBC CEO Jeff Schell, ended his career a week ago, was not only dallying with him, but also the now 80-year-old owner of hockey's Seattle Kraken, David Bonderman, leading to the rhetorical question, want to come ride in my Zamboni? Now the New York Post says Hadley Gamble was also in a relationship with the now 76-year-old California billionaire Tom Barrack, also the Trump fundraiser. There is outtake video of her trying to get him, and he's barefoot and wearing shorts, to move out of frame of her camera, apparently her CNBC camera, during a live shot from Turkey in 2020. It also reports that she did other shows from his penthouse and that there was an HR investigation at CNBC into whether or not Tom Barrack arranged an interview for Hadley Gamble with Jared Kushner. Nice dating choices, Jeff Shell. Thank you, Nancy Faust. And St. Louis has lost one of its sports icons. Mike Shannon, a member of three St. Louis Cardinals pennant winners and two World Series champs in the 1960s, and after a kidney ailment forced him into early retirement, a team broadcaster since 1972 died yesterday at the age of 83. Mike Shannon hit three homers and drove in eight runs in 21 World Series games, but perhaps the enduring image of him came at the end of one of the games of the 1964 World Series. Mickey Mantle of the Yankees won that game with a bottom of the ninth inning home run off Barney Schultz to right field at Yankee Stadium. Shannon raced to the outfield fence and was ready to leap to try to get Mantle's blast when it landed in the upper deck, about halfway up, 50 or 60 rows deep, at least 120 feet above Mike Shannon's head. Shannon's teammate Bob Gibson asked Shannon what the heck he was doing if he really thought he could catch a ball that was basically 10 stories above his head. Shannon answered, You never know, big boy, you never know. Still ahead on Countdown, he threw the bat at me. Not at Mike Piazza, not at the ground. And the next thing I knew, Mike Piazza was threatening to sue me. I'll explain. First time for the Daily Roundup, the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Elon Musk. Did you see him with Mar? I didn't. Like everybody else, I saw the clips. While they were congratulating each other on being super geniuses, Researchers at USC, UCLA, UC Merced, and Oregon State determined that under Musk, the big spreaders of hate speech on Twitter have doubled their hate output, twice as much hate speech under the son of an apartheid South African mine owner. Who'd have thunk it? Runner-up, Carol Ratchner, member of the Denton County School District in Texas. She's one of those book banners, and the book she wants banned, with no evident sense of irony, is... Handmaid's Tale. 
There is a two-page form that Texas's fascists have to fill out so we can see the stupidity dripping out of every one of Ratchner's words about the book, especially when she tried checking all the boxes she had to check, and she could not find the one she wanted, so she drew her own box and checked it and wrote next to it, whoever approved this book should be fired. I believe I will have to involve law enforcement, trash it, and order a mental health exam for the author, unquote. Fascist, heal thyself. Unclear how the form she filled out went viral, but Ratchner clearly did not notice that she put her home address on it. But our winner, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, after neighbors approached a drunken man firing his AR-15 and asked him if he would stop because their baby was sleeping, man went over and killed five of them execution style. Hours later, this slime bucket Abbott, who may or may not actually be a human being, tweeted a photo of a dog with the caption, all smiles for the weekend. Bad enough, but then last night he followed it up with another tweet announcing a reward in the case and to smear the victims of the gun. He, Greg Abbott, has personally fueled. He referred to these dead people as, quote, illegal immigrants, unquote. Sometimes this award is not meant at all seriously. Other times it's hyperbolic. Other times, no, I mean it. Greg Abbott, today's worst person in the world. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Still ahead on Countdown, over the weekend I was reminded 39 years ago this week I arrived in Boston as a rookie local TV sportscaster and two weeks after that the Red Sox called up a rookie pitcher, Roger Clemens. And that reminded me of the World Series game in which Mike Piazza swung and broke his bat. Roger Clemens picked up a piece of the bat and threw it at, well Mike thought he threw it at him. From my reporting perch in the Yankee dugout, I thought Clemens threw it at me. The story of Bat Day, next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. Bubbles somehow escaped the kill list Saturday at the New York Pound. They killed other dogs. Bubbles, full name is Jacuzzi Bubbles. Two years old, about 50 pounds, a kind of pity mix. And so terrified, she's pinned her ears back. She was found wandering at the old World's Fair site in Queens just a week ago and already went immediately onto death row. She needs pledges to help defray the costs for a rescue group to save and train her. You can find Bubbles on my Twitter feeds and pledge if you want or just retweet her. It is her only chance. I thank you and Bubbles thanks you.
started on the night of October 22nd, 2000, and it ended, well, I'll let you know if and when it ever ends. I was enjoying the second night of one of my childhood dreams come true. I was the host, not just of the telecast of the World Series, but it was an all-New York City series, a Mets versus Yankee series, a Subway series. I'd literally dreamt of it since 1967. The manager of the Yankees had been the first person I ever interviewed on TV. Fifteen years earlier, I had worked with him in TV. He was a friend of mine. I had just covered the Mets through their playoff run and knew all of their players. My face had been on an advertisement in dead center field in the Mets stadium for the entirety of the year before, and the players all knew me by name. Where we were that night, Yankee Stadium, was not only where I saw my first baseball game, but was about seven-eighths of a mile from the hospital in which I had been born. And my first home was four subway stops away. The night before this event, as I hosted the start of the first game of this Keithapalooza, I was supposed to introduce the public address announcer of Yankee Stadium, Bob Shepard, whose voice I had heard nearly every day since I was eight years old. So he could then introduce the players and this epic World Series would begin. And it dawned on me in the seconds before I was supposed to do this, that I literally had the power to stop the 2000 World Series from ever happening. If I just kept talking and never actually said, here is Bob Shepard. Well, I could delay it briefly until they cut my mic off and then fired me on the spot. Anyway, this was game two. And now that our pregame show was over and I had waved to my mother, who had seen her first game at Yankee Stadium just, ooh, 66 years previously, and she was seated in the family seats that were just nine rows up from our on-field set, I had crawled into the position I would assume for the entire game as the dugout reporter. I was hunched over on a stool, squeezed between the far end of the Yankee dugout and our Fox Sports first base camera. A thin chicken wire fence separated me from the dugout itself. In fact, it was a formality. I was more or less in the dugout. Players, coaches, and that night as I settled in, my friend the Yankee manager all came over to say hello. Roger Clemens of the Yankees, who I had also known since we were both rookies in Boston sports in 1984, he lasted, I didn't, Roger Clemens had struck out the first two Mets hitters. Clemens was a strange man about whom I had heard a strange tale of teammates in a college summer baseball league who were all wearing their wallets in their uniform pants back pockets during a game because one of them explained to a friend of mine, we have this crazy kid Clemens from Texas on this team and we don't trust him. In Boston, I had found him a little nervous, a little standoffish, but doing his best to be professional. But by now, there were rumors swirling around Roger Clemens about amphetamines and performance-enhancing drugs, and you knew not to talk to him before or after a game unless you had to. And if you had to, you chose your words very carefully and made sure that whatever you did, you had to start with something mundane, like the score of the game. And if you could let him bring up anything controversial or complex, he would then probably do it. So, now, as this game continued after two batters had struck out, Lee Mazzilli, the former Mets star, now Yankees coach, another friend of mine, was on the other side of like a little fence, and as Mets superstar Mike Piazza stepped in as the third batter of the game, Mazzilli leaned in and said conspiratorially, let's see if Raj flips him again. In midsummer 2000, Roger Clemens had beamed Mike Piazza with a fastball. There was a hospital visit involved. Nobody was convinced it had not been intentional or that Clemens would not do it again, even though it was the World Series. Mazzilli and I leaned forward. Piazza was a deeply complicated guy, too. During the playoffs, he had walked up to me and asked me if it was true I was from New York, and then he quizzed me about the relative merits of the suburbs, and then he wanted to know if I had really taken up residence in his favorite Southern California hotel, and we talked for 15 minutes about that. The next night, I saw him, smiled, said hello, and he looked at me like I had just sworn a vendetta against his family. For a long time, I thought it was me until about 10 years later, the great Vin Scully said that Piazza was with the Dodgers, and when they were both together there in Los Angeles, Vin had had the identical experience with Piazza, best friends on the team bus one day, and then no indication Piazza remembered even meeting him the next. I mean, that was Vin Scully. 
Clemens, as it turned out, did not throw a baseball at Piazza, but instead pitched him inside, in on his hands. And Piazza tried to stop a swing that was half self-defense, but instead, the odd angle and the force of the pitch shattered Piazza's bat. The ball veered to the right, describing a circle into foul territory. The head of the bat shot out towards Clemens on the mound. A second piece flew briefly into the infield. Piazza was left holding just the handle, and it looked as foolish as that sounds. But lost in this description is the fact that that all happened at once. And even from our sign angle in the Yankee dugout, it looked to Mazzilli and me as if Piazza's bat had simply exploded, like it was a trick device of some sort. I saw Clemens reach for the baseball. I thought it was the baseball right in front of him. And then just as quickly, he and I at the same moment realized it was not the baseball. It was the barrel of the bat, which was slightly rounded, just a little darker than a baseball, but could in the heat of an instant following a bat explosion, it could be mistaken for a ball. So far, so good. But right then, Clemens, realizing it was part of a bat and not a ball, promptly threw that part of the bat at me. Jesus, Maz, I said to Mazzilli, why did Clemens throw that bat barrel at me? The Yankee coach looked incredulously at me. He didn't throw it at you, he threw it at me. That's what it looked like. We were lined up perfectly. If Roger Clemens had thrown the barrel of Mike Piazza's bat, say, 120 feet, instead of just six or seven feet, he would have hit either me or Lee Mazzilli in the Yankee dugout. As it was... Since nobody knew exactly what was happening, Piazza had started to run down to first base. In case the ball was fair, he didn't know where the ball was either. For that initial split second, you really couldn't tell which flying object was the ball and also whether the ball was fair or foul. So Roger Clemens's throw certainly looked like it was aimed at Piazza as Piazza went down the first baseline and as Piazza took umbrage and there was another split second of confusion when it looked like Piazza might charge out to the mound to try to sock Clemens for this and for the midsummer beaning, I said to Mazzilli, wait, did he throw that bat at Piazza? Mazzilli just shook his head. I don't think so. Who in the hell knows? He's been here two years. I haven't figured out anything he's done so far. As the umpires then got involved, Clemens repeatedly tapped his own chest, and not in a bragging way, but in a kind of what well, looked like that's on me way. Two bat boys collected the three main pieces of the bat and a bunch of smaller shards, some of them smaller than a toothpick. The Fox play-by-play -play man threw it to me in the dugout. Well, I said, I can tell you the Yankee dugout doesn't know what happened or why, Joe. Mazzilli laughed quietly and then hit me in the arm while I was on the air. I postulated that Clemens was looking for a ball hit back to him, instead found the piece of the bat, and then discarded that piece of the bat so he could keep looking for the ball. That he discarded it kind of where Piazza was running might have been deliberate, might have been a coincidence. I do remember suggesting that if Clemens had really aimed the bat at Piazza, that from that distance, with the strength and accuracy of a major league pitcher, he clearly would have hit him with it. Piazza then promptly grounded out to end the inning, and as Clemens came back towards the Yankee dugout where Mazzilli and I were, he again stopped to talk to the umpire, who was Charlie Relliford. Over the noise of 56,000 fans at Yankee Stadium, I couldn't hear a damn thing. But it sure looked like Clemens was again saying, that was on me. I asked Mazzilli if he could find out if that's what Clemens was doing, and half an inning later, Mazzilli reported that Clemens indeed thought for a second it was the ball and that he threw it and that it was on him, and that it was not intentional, and it was not directed at Piazza. Now I did something kind of stupid. I suggested to my bosses that I should go ask the commissioner of baseball, who in a World Series game had the power to eject any player for any reason, although that power had not actually been used since 1934, what he thought of all this. The producer said yes, and I thought, me and my big mouth. I now had to crawl out of that little space between camera and dugout, and I mean literally, crawl, hands and knees, to exit back into the seats via where the groundskeepers kept all the extra dirt. I knew where in the stands the commissioner was sitting. I went there. I got to him. I asked him. He assured me there was no discipline coming for Clemens, and they'd look at the tape of the game again that night or in the morning, but he really didn't think Clemens had tried to hit Piazza with the bat. Well, they would look at the tape, and they decided both that Clemens did not try to hit Piazza with the bat and that he should be fined $50,000 for, I don't know, not trying to hit him with the bat?
So I made it back to the dugout, reversing my crawl like I was recreating the movie The Great Escape. As it turned out, Piazza's little squib shot that caused all the trouble with the exploding bat was about the hardest thing they hit off Clemens all night. Over eight innings, he struck out nine Mets batters, he walked none, he gave up only two hits, and he only hit one batter. And then, incredibly, after Clemens left the game, the Yankees almost blew a 6-0 lead in the ninth inning. A Met outfielder named Jay Payton hit a three-run homer off future Hall of Famer Mariano Rivera, and the Mets had a chance to tie the game or go ahead off Rivera in the top of the ninth, and then he got out of it, and the final score was 6-5 Yankees. And with the game over, now it was Keith interviews Clemens time. I went to the prearranged spot at the other end of the Yankee dugout where another friend of mine, the Yankees PR director, had guaranteed me he would go and get Clemens and they would emerge after Clemens left the clubhouse to do what was a contractually obligated interview with Fox and me. Apparently, Roger Clemens started making his way towards me the moment the Yankees finally won that game. Unfortunately, at that exact moment, Security closed the only runway from the Yankee dugout to the clubhouse so that a dignitary could use it as an exit from his seats. The dignitary was Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, noted front-running Yankees fan and ticket freeloader. And while Fox literally delayed the start of every newscast on every one of its stations in the country, even on the West Coast, and Joe Buck and Tim McCarver kept showing replays again and again and promising my interview with Roger Clemens, Rudy Giuliani took his goddamn time leaving the field. His idiot son, Andrew, grabbed some dirt from the field. I half expected him to eat it. Instead, he stuffed it in his jacket pockets. Giuliani now waited for his entire entourage, one of his wives... Some of his, I guess they were friends, assorted political riffraff. And as my producers screamed in my ear, where is Clemens? Giuliani waited until they were all together on the field. And finally, he marched them down into the dugout and up through the runway. And after all this delay, Clemens came out. And finally, I could ask him about throwing the bat shard at or near Piazza. And at that moment... I remembered what I had learned about Clemens in Boston. If you started an interview with something controversial, he might very well walk away. If, on the other hand, you did the boring game outcome question, he would answer anything you asked, and he might even bring up anything controversial himself. But you had to do the stupid game stuff first. So, which was harder work, Roger? I asked. Eight innings of two-hit ball or watching the Mets nearly tie it in the ninth? His answer was not bad, but he did not bring up the bat. So I asked another question about what he thought of his performance in that game. Well, that did it. He started talking about having to overcome his emotions in the first inning. And now I could say, well, since you brought up the emotions, the bat throwing incident, did you throw that piece of broken bat at Mike Piazza? There is a freeze frame from that interview in which Roger Clemens' eyes are bugged wide open. Well, Glemons basically confirmed what the guys in the dugout had told me he had told them. You can believe him or not, but he thought the thing he grabbed was the ball. And when it wasn't, he threw it away just in case the ball was somewhere else near him and he had to have a free hand with which to pick it up. He explained the chest taps he was indeed saying to the umpire, umpire Charlie, as Clemens called him, accompanying his apologies to the umps for throwing the bat. He said he didn't even know where Piazza was at the point he threw the bat. It was as straight and nonpartisan and, frankly, as informative an interview as I've ever conducted. Meanwhile, everybody else in that stadium, everybody else in that city, everybody else in the tri-state area was convinced of one of only two things. Roger Clemens had tried to impale Mike Piazza with a shard of his own bat or... The Mets were crybabies who could not tell that Clemens obviously did not try to impale Mike Piazza with his own bat. There was no middle ground. I found this out specifically the next day when the TV sports columnist of the New York Times, Rich Sandemir, who was a friend of mine, called to interview me about the interview. Why didn't you ask him about the bat first? Nobody cared about how he pitched. He threw a bat at, at, at Piazza. I said, you're a Met fan. And I explained the theory of not making Clemens end an interview before he said what you needed to know. I went through the whole thing I just recited here. It was amazing to see 
those few days how every sports reporter and columnist in New York self-identified as either a Met fan or ex-Met fan or a Yankee fan or ex-Yankee fan, and you can still see it today as this story from 22 years ago is recollected by others. They wrote what they felt as kids. Clemens was the victim or Clemens tried to kill Mike Piazza like he was a Dracula and they had the wooden stake to go through his heart. Meanwhile, we learned recently from Joe Torre, the Yankee manager, another one of my friends, that they all hid something from us that night. The thing about emotions. After the incident in the first inning, Roger Clemens went back to the Yankee clubhouse and started to cry. This might have had something to do with embarrassment or grief, but since he had noted that he had had to check his emotions, I always thought, well, he might have been a little overamped for that game, naturally or otherwise. All right, so before I present anything else out of chronological order, let me go back to the moment I thanked Roger Clemens for the interview and threw it back to Joe Buck and Tim McCarver in the Fox booth, because this is when the real trouble started. They were pretty much done for the night, but I had another two hours to go in a live postgame show on Fox's cable sports network. We had about four minutes until that show started, and it suddenly occurred to me that although this was not the most important event in the history of the World Series, the bat would become part of the iconography of baseball. I had been at Yankee Stadium often enough over the years to know the two kids who ran the visiting clubhouse. And right then, they were still packing up the Mets' bats and equipment in the Mets' dugout. So I ran over and asked the senior of them, what happened to the pieces of the Piazza bat? Well, the guy explained that Bobby Valentine, the Mets' manager, had asked that one of the pieces go to a friend of his in the stands. And he, the clubhouse attendant, had handed it to the guy. A second piece, he believed, was kept by the Yankees. He wasn't sure about that. The third piece, the handle, was, where was it? Where is it? He asked the other attendant. It's here in the garbage, the kid said. I did a double take. The garbage? Yeah, the kid said, under the dugout bench. And there it was, stuffed in amid all the empty bags of sunflower seeds and the crushed Gatorade cups. I said, what happens to it now? Gets thrown out. They clean out the dugouts first. So I said, look, can I borrow it? This would make a great prop for our postgame show. And the attendant says, sure. And he pulls it out of the pile and hands it to me. Just about seven inches of a baseball bat. And all there is is Piazza's uniform number 31 written in magic marker on the bottom. Listen, I said, I, I won't be able to bring this back to you for like two hours. We're on for two hours. Will you still be in the clubhouse? And he said, are you kidding? We have to be here at eight. He and I will be out of here in 10 minutes. And I said, you want me to bring it back to you for game three? And he says, garbage? You're going to bring back garbage? Throw it out, keep it, whatever. What do I care? So I used the bat fragment as a prop in the show repeatedly, and I stuck it in my shoulder bag, and I thought, I'm not a scrounger, but this is a valuable piece of memorabilia, and I'd like to keep it. So I'll, either I'll auction it off for charity and bid against myself or something, or I'll make a donation to a baseball charity, and I'll keep it. And that was it. And two days later, as the World Series shifted from Yankee Stadium to Shea Stadium, I got a phone call from one of the PR guys at Fox Sports. Did you see the paper? And I said, no, not yet. And he says, Piazza told the guy from Newsday that you stole his bat, and he wants it back. And I said, What? If I hadn't asked about it, it would be on a garbage scow right now being towed out to be dumped in the Atlantic Ocean. And he says, maybe, but Piazza told this John Heyman he's going to sue you to get it back. So now I go to the ballpark with extra excitement on my plate. I'm waiting for Mike Piazza to tell me he's going to sue me. So I go out onto the field. I'm wondering how long it's going to be before I run into Piazza. And like two minutes after I step on the field, I turn around and he's walking towards me. And he looks at me and he says, hey, Keith. Wild one the other night, huh? Say, listen, when you lived at Shutters, did you ever eat at Ivy at the Shore in Santa Monica? Nothing about the bat. We're talking about restaurants in Santa Monica, California. And I say, well, yeah, but did you ever eat at Shea Jay's? And a big smile from Piazza. Oh, man, I love Shea Jay's. I love Jay. Give me your number. This winter when I'm home, let's go eat at Shea Jay's. And I said, I'll pay for it, and I'll order the sand dabs. Now we're talking about sand dabs, how to prepare sand dabs at a restaurant. And then he says, hey, sorry, I got to go hit. Have a good show. That was it. He's in the paper threatening to sue me. We see each other on the field. He starts the conversation. 
No mention of suing me. Not one word. Next day in the paper, more Piazza quotes about how he's going to sue me for stealing his bat. Next night, game four of the World Series. We're just about to go on the air with the pregame show, and now Piazza comes over again, coming in from the outfield to the dugout, and he says, hey, this must be really cool to do what you guys are doing. Have a great show. And by now, the only thing I can think of, he does not know I'm the same Keith Olbermann he keeps threatening to sue. So the World Series ends and the Yankees beat the Mets. And if you look for it, there's this photo of the traditional post-game awarding of the World Series trophy and the Most Valuable Player Award. And it's Commissioner Bud Selig and Derek Jeter of the Yankees and me. And just before it happened, George Steinbrenner was the owner of the Yankees. He's crying and he leans in and I give him a hug and reassure him. And he asked me if my mother went to the game. And I said, you know my mother. She'd never come to Shea Stadium. She hates it more than you do. And he says... I love her more than ever before now. So the series ends, and it's not been that great a series, but it's been exciting, and it was the dream from my childhood. And the Yankees have won, and my friends are happy, and I've not heard another word about this lawsuit. Nothing from Mike Piazza. And I told the Fox people, well, if I'm not going to hear anything more from them, it's easy. I'm going to keep the bat, and I'm going to donate $25,000 to this charity, the baseball assistance team, which helps ex-ball players in financial need because, A, I'm not a scrounger. B, it's a great cause. C, that's actually much more than the bat handle would be worth on the open market. And D, the acronym for the baseball assistance team is B-A-T, BAT. And that's perfect. It's about Piazza's bat. You get it? And then nothing for a month. Whereupon Fox gets another letter now from Piazza's agent, a fellow named Manzon, and he threatens to sue again, and that's the end of it. Never heard from him again. So now it's the next year, 2001, and I'm back in New York working for CNN, doing the news, and I go to a Mets game, and I see Piazza, and I give him a big smile, and I offer my hand, and I say, still owe you those sand dabs from Shea Jay, and he just stares at me and walks right past me. And I see a cop I know who works next to the Mets dugout, and the cop says, Mike has been asking him about me. Is that Keith Olbermann, the one who stole my bat? So now, I'm not just keeping the bat. I want to sue Mike Piazza for being a pain in the ass. And then 9-11 happens. And ballplayers are doing charity things, and sportscasters and newscasters are doing charity things. And I think, well, this is the time. When the baseball season resumes, I throw the bat handle in my bag and I go out to a Mets game and I go up to Piazza's locker before the game and I pull the bat shard out and I say, take this, Mike, auction it off for charity. Let's do some good with this. Or if it's too much trouble, you sign it and I'll auction it off. We can leave my name out of it, whatever you want, however you want to do it. And he looks at me like I've just insulted his mother and says, no, it's too complicated. And he turns away and I think to myself, this is is the strangest athlete I have ever met. And just before the season ends, I go to another Mets game. Now, this time, it's one of his teammates who takes me aside and says, you know, Piazza never stops talking about you stealing his bat from the Clemens game last year. He says he still wants to sue you. Didn't you try to give him the bat back in the clubhouse to auction off? Didn't I see that? And I say, yeah, I did. And he refused to take it. And the guy laughs and he says, great player, excellent catcher. I love him. Strangest player I have ever met. Comes 2002, nothing happens. See Piazza at several Mets games, nothing happens. 2003, nothing happens. Now, I can't pin the year down on this. It's one of the Red Sox-Yankees playoff series, either 2003 or 2004, and I'm leaving the field as they're clearing the media off just before the game starts. I'm going out through the Red Sox dugout, literally at the same spot where the kid handed me Piazza's bat handle three or four years earlier, where the trouble all began. And I see the new owner of the Red Sox team approaching from the other end of the dugout. Keith, John Henry, nice to meet you. Have you got a minute? And I said, well, yeah, they're, they're kicking the media off the field. So, And he laughs and he says, I can take care of that. And he yells at the plainclothes cop. And he says, he's with me. And the cop nods. And John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox, and I sit down on the Red Sox bench before the start of a Red Sox-Yankees playoff game. And there are no other reporters out there. And I think, okay, what did I say about the Red Sox? What is he pissed off about? Instead, John Henry says, can I ask you about Mike Piazza? And I laugh and I say, sure, what about him? And he says, 
you have part of his bat from the World Series with Clemens, right? And I say, yeah. And he says, tell me the whole story. So I do, what you've just heard. And John Henry says, that's what I was told. Thank you. Huh. I thought it was me. So that other piece of the bat that was handed to a friend of Bobby Valentine's during that game, that friend is a great friend of mine. And after 9-11, he said, wouldn't it be great to get Mike Piazza to sign this? And then we can auction it off for the victims' families or the cops or some other charity. And he gives me the bat and I call the Mets and they approach Mike and they call me and they say, Mike loves the idea and I should come to one of the spring training games and he'll sign it. So the next March, I go to one of the Mets spring training games and I go up to him in the clubhouse and I introduce myself and he looks at me like I'm from Mars. And I say, well, I brought the bat. And he says, what bat? And I explain that we had arranged to have him sign the bat from the World Series for a 9-11 charity. And he erupts at me. I'm not signing that bat. Sure, for charity. You think I was born yesterday? And now I say something to John Henry, owner of the Red Sox, like, welcome to the club. Did he threaten to sue you too? And he laughs and says, yes, that's the next part of the story. So while we're trying to straighten that out, his agent calls me and asks if I will give them the bat to auction off for charity. And I say, sure. And I go to another Mets game and I go to the clubhouse and I have the bat again. Now Piazza says, no, I can't take the bat because of pending litigation. But if I want him to, he'll sign it for me. All I have to do is come back a couple of weeks later. So this is what I wanted to ask you, Keith. Is he the strangest ball player you've ever met, or is it just me? There's one more part to this. Flash forward to 2014. I still have the Piazza bat handle, the one I unsuccessfully tried to give back to Piazza. The middle portion, the one John Henry unsuccessfully tried to give back to Piazza, has been sold with the proceeds going to charity. So where is the third piece, the barrel of the bat, the part that Clemens threw at Piazza if you're a Met fan or was unfairly accused of throwing at Piazza if you're not a Met fan? And the answer finally arrives in a sports memorabilia auction catalog that year. While one of the visiting Bat Boys was handing the middle part of the bat to a friend of Bobby Valentine and John Henry's in the stands, the barrel, which landed near the Yankee dugout, was scooped up by the Yankee Bat Boy, who put it in the pile of Yankee broken bats. And as it turned out, right at that point, the Yankees' strength and conditioning coach, Jeff Mangold, who was on the bench, said, Wait a minute. That's the pile of broken bats they're going to throw out. They shouldn't throw it out. It's history. And he grabs that part of the Piazza bat and puts it up in his home office. And now it's 14 years later, and he wants to auction it off for charity. So he auctions it off, and I think, well, hell, it should be alongside the other piece of the bat, my other piece of the bat, the handle. So I win the auction. And there it is on my wall, complete with a baseball card showing Roger Clemens about to throw the barrel reasons left to your imagination two-thirds of the famous bat i'll sell it someday i'm sure but i'll always have the memories my memories and john henry's memories and if you're wondering no unlike john henry and i that yankee strength coach jeff mangold never tried to give it back to piazza or get it signed by piazza or auctioned it off for charity with piazza which means that on top of everything else Jeff Mangold is smarter than John Henry and I put together. I've done all the damage I can do here. And by the way, thank you. I don't have the final numbers, but as of recording time, downloads for the month of April were a record. 1,318,000. So again, thanks. Tell the others. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc., Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And our announcer today was Stevie Van Zandt. Everything else pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 846th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Ulberman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck.
Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.